Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So I want to, uh, one of the things that I love about the Hebrew language is that many words mean multiple different things. And depending on the context in which the word is used, the meaning will change. But you can actually learn a lot about the meaning of the word and about uh, the terms themselves through the uh, intercontextual comparison of how those words are used. So, for example, probably one of the most famous ones, one of the most obvious ones, is shalom. Right? Hebrew scholars out there, what does shalom mean? Peace, Peace. hello, and goodbye, right? So it turns out that... What's that? Devotion. Ah, okay, very good. So shalom, okay, means classically hello, goodbye, or peace, right? Um, Those things are actually interrelated. The original use of the term shalom, how it became to be used for hello and goodbye, uh, was by virtue of its being a word that meant peace. The original greeting, which is actually still carried over and some, uh, some, some uh, Hebrew-speaking people uh, uh, will say this, and uh, you uh, hear it probably more famously in uh, Muslim communities, right? Shalom Aleichem, right? Which is a greeting, that's hello, but it literally means peace be upon you. Right, um, and then Aleichem Shalom is the is the response, right? Uh, um, which uh, uh, you know, upon you peace, right? Which we have in uh, in Arabic too. Assalamu alaikum is the same thing, right? Shalom aleichem. Uh, so, how we now use the word shalom to mean hello actually comes from its original meaning peace. So it's actually an interchangeable word. It doesn't really mean hello goodbye. It really means peace, but it's a shorthand for hello or goodbye. There's other contextual meanings, of course, for shalom, because shalom, Hebrew is a root language, and so the roots also give contextual meaning to, to words, right? So shalom uh, comes from uh, the, the root shin lam and mem, which means fullness, right? Shalom, right? The complete kaddish, the full kaddish, right? So shalom, peace, is about fullness, completion, wholeness. Good. There's another one that we do, uh, uh, you may not have noticed this, but we uh, actually say it very often in the, uh, in the liturgy, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, in the beginning of the Amidah, we praise God who is, uh, we say, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Velohei Avotenu. In a few uh, weeks, we'll start saying, Ve'imotenu uh, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Sarah, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Tzach, Elohei Yaakov, Elohei Sarah, Elohei Rivka, Elohei Rachel, Elohei Leah. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of Sarah, God of, of Rebecca, God of Rachel, and God of Leah. Ha- five minutes off every sermon every week. Uh, I will do that. <laughs> right, the great, awesome, and majestic God, El Elyon, Most High, Kone Hakol, 
right? Which means uh, who created everything. And remembers the righteousness of the uh, of the patriarchs and the imahot and the matriarchs, right? Uh, so that word konehakol, that's really what I wanted to get to there. Konehakol, which means creator of everything. Those who uh, speak modern Hebrew, anybody know how we use the word koneh in modern Hebrew? When you go to a mall, what do you do? I make note. Right, you buy things, right? Kone means to buy something or to own it, right? It's an ownership term, right? If, I, if I'm kone something, I own it. So actually, those two meanings are interconnected because in a pre-industrial society, uh, this is, you know, for all you Marx scholars out there, you know this, right? Uh, uh, in a pre-industrial society, the, uh, the ownership of a good belong to the producer of a good. And that's what changed in the Industrial Revolution. The people who actually were making the goods no longer had ownership of the goods, right? But in a pre-industrial society, the person who made the goods owned them. So when we say God is konehakol, the maker of everything, we are also saying that God is the owner of everything, right? Good. So we, uh, and there are a myriad other examples of, uh, of this. And I'll give you one more, okay, just because we're having fun up here. Uh, I haven't, we haven't started the Imahot yet, so I don't have to cut five minutes off. Okay, so, um, <laughs> so um, one more, okay. Uh, kadosh, holiness, right? Kadusha, holiness, right? We use that in a lot of different contexts, right? It means holiness, uh, uh, kiddush is sanctification. Those are very closely related, right? Holiness is the uh, is the general term. Uh, kiddush is the verb form of it, right? I sanctify something. I make something holy. But then there's also, if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding or had a Jewish wedding, you did kiddushin, right? Which literally means, which we, I mean, literally means holiness, but it, it contextually means betrothal, right? Or, or in some ways, depending on your uh, feminism, acquisition, Right, uh, uh, it's a it's a statement of what connection. Connection, good. Okay, that's a very nice way of putting it. Um, <laughs> it's a it's it's a it's a statement. It is now. It's a statement of ex. Although you could be in my household, know that it is not an equal partnership. There is a clear boss, and I am not it. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So I'm sure you can. So um, it's about it's about exclusivity, right? But actually, those definitions uh, reinforce and support each other. What we understand about holiness. What holiness means when God is holy, uh, God is exclusive, right? Unique, separate, right? When God says that we are supposed to be a holy people, we're supposed to be a separate people, a people apart from the other nations. Or as I uh, uh, suggested a few months ago when we were in uh, Parashat uh, Kedoshim, Parsha that takes its name from, from the word Kadosh, um, I suggested that uh, what when God says Kadoshim to you, ki Kadosh right? Uh, what, what I said they're taking from the, this idea of Kirushin, of exclusivity, I said, God is all into the relationship and is inviting us to be all in. Right? That's what Kirushin is, right? Right? Both partners have to say, in your terms, Gary, right, I am all in on this. Just you. Right? So you see how how a, a word can mean two different things used in different contexts, but those contexts can actually reinforce the meetings in the other contexts. So our parsha this week 
is known as Parshat Dvarim. And the whole book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew is known as Sefer Dvarim. And contextually, Dvarim there means what? Words. Words. Very good, right? Ela Hadvarim. These are the words that Moses spoke to the children of Israel uh, on the banks of the Jordan River uh, before they enter into the land of Israel. And the words, uh, as we find during the course of the uh, portion, are not always so kind. Uh, Moses uh, is really kind of uh, um, turning his swan song into an axe to grind against the Jewish people, but that's a little bit uh, uh, of an aside. But it's. What's that? Am Kishayorah, right? They're stiff-necked people. It's a, it's you know he has some choice words, choice words for the for the, but words nonetheless. Devarim there means words. So Hebrew scholars, what else can Devarim mean? Things. Things. Good. Things. The same word Devar can mean words, or it can mean things. And now let's think about how those definitions, even when they're used in different contexts, can reinforce each other. How would we think about words if we were also to remember that the same word used to define words also means things? I think it's both description and prescription. So here's the description. That words are things should be pretty apparent to many of us. We know it from our history that hateful words and the lack of words born of hatred or born of ambivalence can create profound realities and very often do create profound realities there's no such thing as just some words there's no such thing as just saying something just putting it out there because our Torah begins with God speaking the world into existence and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel reminds us that that's to teach us that words create worlds. And we can see myriad examples in our world today, our society today, in which words have become treated as cheap commodities. Things that you could just put out there because it gets you on the news, or it stokes conversation, or gets retweeted or liked on Facebook without attention being given to the actual ramifications of those words. When they're put out there, they take on a reality of their own. And that reality can be world-affirming, world-building, or it can be world-destroying, depending on what the words are and who hears them and how they understand them. So words are things, And we are being called, I think, by our tradition, by our language, the Hebrew language, by the Torah portion, to remember that words are things. And so when we speak them, when we formulate them, to treat them as such, to treat them as real, existent entities, objects that we put out in the world that can either 
clutter the world with ugliness that can either break apart our society and break apart the fabric of our communities or can build it up and beautify it. Words are things. That's the description. But here is the prescription. That if words are things, and we ought to treat words as things, then we should always strive to speak about things. In other words, we should always strive to make our words matters of substance. The great Hasidic master, uh, Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, says in Likute Eetzot, uh, his uh, book of uh, guidance of, of life, which kind of goes through the whole gamut of, of topics that, uh, that, that you could think of um, about the guidance for life. He has a section on speech. And here's what he says. Okay? By virtue of, of evil kinds of speech. What he means here by evil kinds of speech are kinds of speech that are destructive. But the list that he's about to give, right, words that create worlds that we would not like to see. But the list may surprise many of us, especially in our society in which words are treated as cheap, in which uh, we spew out words and read words and consume words and hear words all the time. There's so much noise of words that we either contribute to or hear in our lives. There's so much. And even in our interpersonal interactions, there are words that are not treated as things that we sometimes generally perceive as innocuous. But listen to what Rabbi Nachman lists on his list of evil speech. He says, Kigon Lashon Hara, which literally means evil speech. Lashon Hara is, uh, 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 is, is speaking negatively about uh, someone, even if it's true. Rechilut, which means speaking, telling stories about somebody whether they are positive or negative stories, even if they are true. Shkarim, lies. Leitzanut, joking. Frivolity. Chanufa o mevayesh pene chavero bedvarin. Or things that you might say that embarrass somebody else, even if you're just joking. Venibul peh. And uh, 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 ugly speech. Udvarim betelim. Udvarim betelim, which means idle speech. Speech that's not about anything substantive, anything in particular, but just kind of shooting the breeze sort of speech. Usha'are diburim ra'im. Right? In other kinds of, uh, of evil speech, and especially if you speak uh, uh, evil speech about righteous people, and upright people, says, by virtue of all of these kinds of speech, all of these kinds of evil speech. And remember, the list of the evil speech is not just things, that, not malicious things, not only malicious things, I should say, not only libelous things that we might say about somebody, you know, things that are both negative and untrue about another person. 
Not only those things, but also positive things that we might say about another person. Positive stories that we might say about another person. Or idle chit-chat. Amazing what the definition of evil speech that Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav gives here. This expansive definition of evil speech are all categories of speech where speech is not treated as a real thing. And where speech is not seen as something that should be about things. My grandmother, uh, who's a great storyteller, by the way, um, she always said that, uh, that, that she strives to always speak about things and ideas and not people. And she always strives to find friends that talk about ideas and talk about things and not people. And I think that that is what Rabbi Nachman is saying in this text. The definition of null speech, of idle speech, of wicked speech, is speech that's not treated as substantive, as a matter of importance. We just kind of literally shoot the breeze. Just air coming out. I had a teacher in elementary school who said that we only get a certain amount of breaths in our life. And we need to be careful about how we spend each of those breaths. And so Rabbi Nachman says, and he uses very colorful language here, all of those kind of speech create, create wings to the serpent, to Satan, uh, to the evil forces in the world that can fly and create great damage in the world, God forbid. So Rabbi Nachman is warning us here. This is the prescription about speech. If speech is described as a thing and understood as a thing, then we should strive to speak as if our speech is a thing. We should strive to speak about matters of substance, matters of importance. So think about the speech that we give, the speech that each of us do, any of us do in our day-to-day lives. This isn't necessarily only about political figures although it certainly is relevant to them. But this is about each and every one of us. How do we talk to each other? How do we talk about each other? How do we engage in conversation? How do we approach the world? How do we approach conversation? Do we give in to the temptation, the discomfort that many of us feel in silence and just put our breath out into the world as if it's no big deal? Or do we strive to only talk about matters of substance, matters of import? Rabbi Nachman goes on to say, Speech has great power. Therefore, it's important to increase the amount that we speak about words of Torah, words of prayer. Utchinot ubakashot and supplications and and uh, and requests of God ubiyoter b'diburim uvesichot beino levein kono, and even more so, words and conversations uh, between a person and God. Ve'im yiyeh hazak bazek kol yimei chayav, and if a person is strong in that virtue all the days of his or her life, ve'vaday yiskel acharitov ba'olam hazeh. Certainly then, a person will merit to a, an ultimate destination, a good ultimate destination in this world and in the world to come forever. 
And we don't necessarily need to think about this as sort of the, the, the classic, I think, kind of Christian conception of you do good and therefore you get the reward of going to heaven. When the when, when the rabbinic tradition talks about Olam Haba, it's not only talking about heaven, it's talking about the uh, ultimate future redeemed state of the world in which we live. And so if you treat your speech, Reb Nachman says, in the way that he's describing here, and you eschew ways of speaking that treat speech as unsubstantive, as immaterial, as unimportant. If you don't speak like that and speak primarily through words of Torah, words of prayer, words of righteousness to each other, then you merit to have not only a good life in this world, which I think is actually meaningful and true advice when you speak like that to each other and about each other, but also that you create a reality of the world to come. Imagine what society would look like if we stopped speaking about people. What society would look like if we didn't engage in idle chit-chat, but when we didn't have matters of importance to discuss, ideas that we wanted to share, conversations of substance that we wanted to have, what if we were just silent? What if we filled the space and filled the air with words of Torah, words of prayer, words of righteousness? What would this world, our lives, look like right now? In Pirkei Avot, the great uh, collection of rabbinic wisdom in the Mishnah, there are two statements nearly back-to-back that reinforce this idea. Shammai, the great sage uh, who was paired, partnered, uh, partners with the sage Hillel, said, Make the study of Torah your primary occupation. Say little, do much, and greet every person with a cheerful face. And then two generations later, Shimon says, All of my days I grew among the sages. And I discovered that nothing becomes a person more than silence. And study is not the essence, but rather deeds. An excess of speech leads to sin. What our Torah portion teaches us, what the Hebrew language teaches us, is that words are things and we should treat words as things. And by doing so, we create the conditions for a healthy, prosperous, cohesive, and righteous society. A good life for ourselves and the possibility that we pray for on this day, Erev Tisha B'Av, as we do every day, but especially today, of a perfected world.